on. We're actually going to start in chapter 19 this morning with the last verse of chapter 19 to give you sort of a feel of how this passage fits together, how it flows. So would you follow along as I read, beginning in chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing around in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, You also go out and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing around here all day with, uh, doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and then going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So, now here's that bookend piece. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Last week, uh, as we were studying through Matthew, we studied the story of the rich young man who had come to Jesus, and Jesus had challenged him uh, with the depth of his devotion and said, if you really want to follow me, you need to sell all that you have, uh, and then you can come and follow me. And the man went away. And the disciples at that point in time uh, began to get the point, uh, you know, Lord, we're kind of like that rich young man. We, we're not, we weren't as wealthy, but we really have given everything. So in verse 27, Peter, seeing that story, said, we've left everything to follow you, Lord. We've left everything. We've done what you asked this rich young man to do. Now here's the question. What then will there be for us? Now, that's sort of the question that Jesus is going to be probing as we explore this Matthew chapter 20 passage. But at first, it kind of sounds a little mercenary, doesn't it? It sounds like, well, Peter's just in this for what he can get out of it. I don't know if you're aware of it or not. Uh, there are some people uh, today, some evangelical teachers, who don't believe uh, that we're going to be rewarded. They think we ought to just follow Jesus for just the sake of following Him. And if we're following Him for the sake of reward, you know, we're just trying to get something back out of it, and that ought not be so. Well, 
you know, I like what C.S. Lewis says here. I know Pastor Rick quoted C.S. Lewis last week, but we're going to do it again this week. I like what he said. He says, if we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire for rewards not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, he said, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like ignorant children who want to continue making mud pies in the slum because we can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. And so on the one hand, I think Peter got it right. I think he did. I think that he recognized that what Jesus said is, if you follow me, there's going to be tremendous, tremendous reward. Oh, by the way, Jesus tells us that the reward is really twofold. And in telling us that, he gives us a definition, a virtual definition of the kingdom. The kingdom, according to Jesus, is uh, uh, both a future event and a present event for him. And he says in verse 28, In the future, as he answers Peter, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things. In the future of the kingdom, there's going to be a renewal, a refreshing, a restoring. That kind of thing that happens every spring. Only the way the Bible pictures it and the way we're studying it in the ABF on the doctrine of heaven, it's going to be just a a marvelous transformation. It's the same word used of the planet. There's going to be a regeneration that's used of us when we come to Jesus by faith. That word regeneration, born again, from which we get our notion of being born again, only occurs a couple of times in the New Testament. This is one of them. And it doesn't just refer to individuals. It refers to the whole planet. There's not just going to be a regeneration of us. There's going to be a regeneration of the whole planet in the future. So there's a renewal. And at the same time there's a renewal, there's going to be a rule or a reign. The Son of Man sitting on His glorious throne. And oh, by the way, you also, He says to the disciples, will sit on twelve thrones judging the nation Israel. Now that's for the twelve disciples, but when we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're told that all of us will have a rule or judging capacity. There, Paul scolds the Corinthians for not being able to take care of affairs in their own church. He says, don't you realize that in the future, you will rule, you will judge, you will be the governmental authorities over angels. So there's a renewal or a regeneration. There's a, 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 a rule that's promised to us in the future. And then just before verse 30 begins, he says there's going to be eternal life. Those three things in the future. And while we're getting there, while we're getting there, Jesus says, the kingdom also involves, involves this piece. Everyone who has left houses and brothers and sister and father and mother or children or fields or whatever you may have thought you left behind, for my sake, he says, you're going to receive a hundredfold back in this life. Now, that's not a prosperity gospel. It's just a simple, uh, you know... Uh, recognition that if you walk away from one family, you join another family. If you walk away from some earthly benefits, you gain some spiritual benefits. Whatever you think you've given up, God is going to restore that to you. So the kingdom is already, and there's some reward already now, 
and the kingdom is not yet. It's coming and there's going to be this ultimate reward. And so Peter got it right. But having said all that, there's also something that Peter didn't get right. And so Jesus now wants to come back and, and he wants to focus in verse 30 about something that Peter may not yet have understood about the kingdom. And so he tells this parable about the kingdom. Now, of all the Gospels, this parable only occurs in Matthew. It's a unique parable. Matthew placed it here just to flesh out this story for us. So this is one of those unique stories. There's no place else to compare it with it. But the other thing I discovered as I was preparing this message this morning is that it's, uh, it's neglected. Uh, what typically happens is that we tell the story of the rich young ruler and then we move on to Jesus predicting his death and, 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 and this passage just kind of gets passed over. There are very few sermons on the internet. There are very few sermons on the web. There are very few sermons in some of the books published on sermons in Matthew that actually cover this passage. And so as I, as I began to look at it, I thought, hmm, that, this is a strange passage. It, it either gets bundled and overlooked or just neglected altogether. And I, I wonder if something's going on here that we really need to pause and look at. So I, I'm kind of plowing new ground here. Uh, and as I worked through the passage, I thought maybe the simplest way to go through the passage is the best way to go through the passage. So let me just make three or four observations about this passage this morning. It's about the kingdom. It's sandwiched between this first and last, last and first statement. Let me make some observations. Verses 1 and 2 will be the beginning. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like... The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard, and he agreed to pay them a denarius for a day he sent them into his vineyard. So the kingdom of heaven is like being a day laborer. Now pause just a second. Day laborers, most of us when we hire on to a job, we don't expect just to work day by day by day by day. We think that when we hire on to a job, there's a certain commitment to that job. But in Jesus' culture, there was a group of people that they were basically subsistence-level workers. And they would go stand on the corner early in the morning, and a farmer would come by, and if he needed help in the field, he would say, I need you, and I need you, and I need you, and I need you. And he would take these day laborers, and they would just work a single day, and that's all the commitment they had. That's all the commitment that was made to them, just a single day. Now, the other thing I notice as I'm reading through this passage is that not only were they subsistence-level workers, they just worked day by day by day with no guarantee of what would happen tomorrow. The, the, the amount offered them here really isn't all that much. That may be a part of their problem rather than the landowner's problem. You see the word, verse 2, he agreed to pay them a denarius? Because this is a generous landowner, as we're about to learn, it could have been two denarii. It could have been three denarii. It could have been four. There's an agreement. They negotiated. And they probably pushed just about the margin of what they thought they could get. And what they negotiated for really wasn't very much. I mean, their, their, their sights were really quite low. What they really negotiated for was just about a, a dollar. Just about enough for them to survive in their culture in that day. And if they actually earned one denarius every day for 365 days out of the year, you can just about imagine what their income would be if they could get work every single day. And I thought to myself, how strange. How strange to tell this story about the kingdom 
that begins with subsistence existence, day laborers earning just sort of minimum. What in the world is, is God trying to say to us here? What's Jesus trying to communicate to us with this imagery about the kingdom of heaven? And then it dawned on me. There's a passage in the Old Testament, I think, that helps to clarify this. So if you will look at Exodus chapter 16, we're going to show this to you on our monitor here in just a second, and uh, we'll just kind of read our way through Exodus chapter 16. This passage uh, explains an experience in the history of the nation of Israel. This occurred 45 days after Israel left uh, Egypt in what we call the Exodus. They're baby Christians. They're brand new believers. They've just left Egypt. And one of the first tests that they run into, they've run out of food. And so, like every good, fine, upstanding Christian, they do what all of us would do. They grumbled. And uh, as a result of their grumbling, this passage is recorded starting in verse 11. Let's just read through this now. The Lord said to Moses, In the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you'll know that I am the Lord your God. And in the morning, sure enough, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, I'm going to teach you a Hebrew expression here. Man who? Can you say that? Man who? Now, that's where we're going to get the word manna from later on what is it man who and it translated well it's man nah clear huh okay that's it we don't know what this stuff was we still are trying to figure it out in the commentaries but it's sort of a play on words man who what is this stuff for they didn't know what it was and moses said to them well it's the bread the lord from heaven has given you to eat So verse 16, this is what the Lord commanded. Each one is to gather as much of this stuff as he needs. Take an omer, an omer is about a tenth of a bushel or a couple of quarts. Take a couple of quarts of this stuff for each person you have in your tent. So the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered a whole lot, some gathered a little. In other words, some pushed it and said, well, two quarts isn't going to be enough for us for each person. Rick eats a lot, so we'll get three quarts for him. But Gail doesn't eat so much, so we'll just get a half of a quart for her. Now, unfortunately, Pastor Rick, when they did that, uh, if you didn't eat your two quarts, what was left over? There are no leftovers. There are no do-overs. You couldn't put it in the fridge because overnight the stuff just disappeared. It turned bad on them. So only what you could use for the day is what you got to keep. Now, verse uh, next verse says that Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much. And he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as they needed. Now, verse 19. Well, then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until the morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. What a strange statement, huh? Some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until the morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. But then on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. Okay, so the sixth day, that would be our Friday, because you can't work on the Sabbath. That was the one day you were allowed to to double your portion. Six days, Moses explained, you're to gather it, but on the seventh day of the Sabbath, there's not going to be any of this whatever it is. 
Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Now, see this interesting story here. You gather only uh, what you need. Uh, You only do it for day by day. There's no leftovers allowed. And, And on special days, when there's special requirements, like before the Sabbath, well, maybe on those days there would be double the grace, double the food. I think that's a part of what's going on with this day labor story. I think what the day labor story is attempting to say to us by the imagery that it's using is simply that God provides for my daily needs like He does for a day laborer. He's never going to give me too much. He's never going to give me too little. What He gives me is always going to be just right. In a way, God is going to so design my life that I am always, always, always dependent on Him. That's why He chose this picture. Uh, I ran across uh, an illustration this week uh, that kind of helps me uh, nail this one down. Grace for today and not a drop more by a pastor, Stephen Altrogi. And he puts it this way. He says, My imagination is terrible. I mean, seriously. It really stinks. I've always been prone to worry and fear. He says, When I was little, my brother and I would pray every night that we would have no fires, no fears, and no bad dreams. Well, as I've gotten older, my fears haven't gone away. They've just grown up with me. Now I fear things like cancer and the economy and my children getting hurt. When my imagination intervenes, that's when things really get bad. Suddenly a little shortness of breath isn't a sign that I'm out of shape. It's a sign of early onset heart disease, uh, which means that I might die of a heart attack, which means I won't be around for my kids, which makes me wonder if I've provided enough for them. It goes on and on. Uh, My imagination, he says, uh, isn't just settled on my health issues. It can run wild over just about anything and everything, from difficulties at church to problems at work to paying my bills. But here's what I'm learning. First, most of the things that I worry about never really come true. Mark Twain nailed it, didn't he, when he said, I've known a great many troubles but most of them never happened. Uh, He translates that to mean, God doesn't give me grace for imaginary troubles. Okay, So you can dream up all this stuff that's going to happen, and God won't provide grace for your imagination. God only provides grace for real troubles. So the second thing I'm learning is that God gives grace for today. Period. I will meet troubles today, and God will give me grace for those troubles today. He does not give me grace today for troubles tomorrow. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus said, Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And he says, The same is true for grace. When I get to tomorrow's troubles, God will be there with sufficient grace. You see... The problem with my imagination is that it always leaves God out of the equation. It always imagines a future in which God has forgotten to show up. But God showed, us, showed up today with enough grace to get me through the day. And He'll show up tomorrow too. So shut up, imagination.
I think that's what this first part of this story is attempting to say to us. Kingdom living is always subsistence living. In the kingdom, we're always going to be dependent on Him. That's not just for today. That's for the future part of the kingdom as well. In the kingdom, things will never change. He's never going to design the universe in such a way that I don't need Him. In the kingdom, I am always a day laborer. You see that there? The second thing uh, I see in this passage as I look at it that helps me understand the kingdom is that the kingdom is like being put to work. Several times here uh, you see the expression like in verse 3. It says, In the third hour he went out and he saw people standing around doing nothing. And then he told them to go to my, that is his, vineyard. And then he does the same expression again just before verse 7. Verse 6, he comes and he finds another group doing nothing. And then in verse 8, he says to them, you go and work in my vineyard. Doing nothing, my vineyard, that's sort of this package around verses 3 through 7. Uh, uh, the vineyard owner hires men from, quote, doing nothing to work in his vineyard at four different times during a 12-hour day. That's a little strange, don't you think? Especially this 11th hour hiring. So here's this man. He goes out. uh, The day starts about 6 o'clock in the morning. At about 9 o'clock, he goes out and he finds another group of people and they're doing nothing and he hires them. About noon, he goes out and he finds another group of men doing nothing and he hires them. About 3 o'clock, he goes out and finds another group of people doing nothing and he hires them. And then about 5 o'clock, the 11th hour, not the 12th, one final hour to work in the day, he still finds a group of people doing nothing. And he hires them and sends them into the field. I want to take a minute to look at that. Because I think we need to understand what's happening here. Let's look especially at those people that were hired during this fifth hour. Isn't it true that when you're hiring day laborers, if you're an employer, probably what you're looking for is the hardest worker, the best worker, the fittest worker, the strongest worker. And that's probably, I'll take you, and I'll take you, and I'll take you, and I'll take you. How do you think the other workers felt when they were left behind? Now, isn't it also curious that rather than go out and investigate his field, I mean, if I had hired some workers in the field, I'd want to be out managing them. I'd want to be saying, how are they doing in the field? But rather than go out and check the field, he goes back and checks the workers again. And there's a whole group of men that haven't been selected for work yet. And they're feeling second class, and maybe they are. He says, well, okay, I'll take you, and I'll take you, and I'll take you, and you go on out, and I'll pay you what's fair. And then he comes back, and he does it again. It's like he neglects the field, but he keeps coming, getting these people, until finally the 11th hour. Here's this group of people all day long. Nobody wants them. Nobody has picked them. They're no good for anything. These are are the leftovers. These are the casts. These are the people that just have nothing to offer. There's nothing. They, they're nobodies. And this landowner looks at them and says, You know, why are you just standing around doing nothing? You too go and get in my field. So he gives them a, a sense of dignity. But can't you also feel the sense of desperation? Here you are, you're standing. Now, this is, this is hand-of-mouth living. 
if you don't work that day, you may not feed your wife and children that night. And so the first group gets picked and you're not picked. You go down a little bit. You get a little discouraged. The second group gets picked. You're still not picked. You get a little dis- You're now an 11th hour person and you're thinking, how in the world am I ever going to feed my family? And oh, by the way, I probably can't expect to get paid a full day's wage. I'm probably only going to get a penny. Everybody else is going to get a dollar. I'm not, but I'm so desperate for work. I'm so desperate that I'm going to hang around all day just hoping that I'll get a job. And now here's this man that comes along and he hires them and puts them in the field. I'd like to suggest to you that that's a picture of all of us in God's kingdom. We fit in there somewhere. These these workers represent the people in God's kingdom. At best, we're all day laborers. Even those that were chosen chosen the very first, we're at best we're day laborers. At best, we need you know this day's work. But at worst, we're passed over, and we're desperate. And yet, and yet, in God's kingdom. Wherever we are, we all count. In the parable's terms, God takes us from doing nothing to make us workers in His vineyard. Uh, it's once said that uh, Steve Jobs uh, entied, uh, from Apple enticed to John Scully, who used to work at PepsiCo, uh, to join Apple by asking him, Do you want to sell sugared water the rest of your life? Or do you want to come and help change the world? Now, in God's perspective, all of us are busy making sugared water. But He's less concerned about the kind of job we have. He's more concerned about giving us a job that really counts. Kingdom jobs. Jobs that that are done for Him. Jobs that are done in his vineyard. And he's really not inviting us to take a different job. He may be inviting us to take the very world that we currently inhabit, the job that we have, or the circumstance that we have, or the environment that we have. And he's saying to us, let me come and let me take you from doing nothing from your meaningless life and let me give you meaning. Let me give you a job that really counts. Marx once called religion the opiate of the people. That may be true of religion. It may be the opiate of the people. But when it comes to the kingdom, the kingdom is the giver of glory and dignity and hope. And in the kingdom, everybody counts in the kingdom. Everybody counts. Now, verses 8 through 12, I I notice a third thing here. The kingdom is like being equals. Now, what's going on here, we saw this as we were reading through the passage in verse 30 of chapter 19. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Remember when we saw that? Notice how it said, but many who are first will be last. Now, the other end of the bookend. Look at verse 16. So the last will be first. Now I happen to believe the Bible doesn't do those kinds of things by accident. The first is mentioned in the first reference. The last is mentioned in the last reference. But they're inverted. Why are they inverted? I think Jesus is trying to say something to us really important here. I think He's trying to say, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're first. It doesn't matter whether you're last. First, last, I don't care what you think. It just 
doesn't matter. And, and the, the day workers that were chosen in that first hour, they understood what Jesus was saying. They understood what Jesus was tempting to do. So in verse 12, they make a complaint. Do you see it in verse 12? These men you have hired last worked only one hour, and now you're trying to make them, what's the word? Equal with us. In the kingdom, everybody becomes an equal worker. Doesn't matter whether they're first, doesn't matter whether they're last. There's an old rabbinic story about a farmer who had two sons. And as soon as they were old enough to walk, uh, he took them out in the fields and he began to teach them everything he knew about growing crops and raising animals. And when he finally got too old to work, the two boys took over the farm. And when the father died, uh, they found that working together had become such a meaningful thing for them that they decided to keep up their partnership. Well, each of the brothers had specialties, and so they would contribute what they could do best. Uh, And as the years passed, uh, the older brother uh, decided not to marry, and so he became uh, a single bachelor on into life. And the younger brother decided that he would marry, and he got married, and he had eight children. Well, as time went by, uh, one year they had a year that was a particularly poor harvest. Uh, The older brother thought to himself on that night, uh, My brother has ten mouths to feed. I only have one. He really needs more of this harvest than I do. Uh, But I know he's much too fair to negotiate with me. So here's what I'm going to do. Tonight, when he's asleep, I'll take some of what's in my barn and I'll slip it over into his barn so that it can help feed his children. Now, sure enough... On the other end of the spectrum, the younger brother woke woke up during the middle of the night, and he was thinking to himself, God has given me these wonderful children. My brother hasn't been as fortunate as I. He really needs more of this harvest for his old age and retirement than I do, but he's much too fair. He won't renegotiate. I know that. I know what I'll do. Tonight, when he's asleep, I'll take some of what's in my barn and I'll slip it over and I'll put it in his barn. And so, sure enough, you can guess, that night, and the moon happened to be full, according to the parable, the two brothers came face to face as they're transporting this grain one side to the other. And then the old rabbi said, You know, that night there wasn't a rain cloud to be seen. But a gentle rain began to fall down. You know what it was, he asks in his parable? It was God weeping for joy because two of his children had gotten the point of the kingdom. Life in the kingdom isn't about who finishes first or last. Life in the kingdom is about refusing to keep score at all. Now that brings me to the hardest part, and we'll finish up real quickly with this one. The hardest part of this one is verses 13, 14, and 15, because I've got to tell you, it does look unfair. After I've said all the things that I've said, it looks unfair, and I think we're supposed to see that it looks unfair. So words like whatever is right in verse 4, and injustice uh, that we saw in verse 12, and don't I have the right again in verse 15, we're, we're supposed to begin to feel that there's something not quite fair going on. There's something strange. Something unusual happened here. Pastor Rick, you don't know this. Pastor Rick studied economics before he became a pastor. 
And uh, so I sneaked into his office this week. This is an apocryphal story. I sneaked into his office this week, and, and I found this article entitled, How International Corporations Work Using Cows. This is what Pastor Rick does on his time off. So let me just show you how uh, uh, capitalism works. Let's see if we can get this up here. Traditional capitalism. See if this makes sense to you. You have two cows. You sell one of your cows and you buy a bull. Your herd multiplies and the economy grows. You sell them and you retire on the income. Pastor Rick says to me, do you get that, Jim? Yeah, I get that. I can see that's traditional capitalism. Now let's go to another part of the world. Forgive me for doing this. I'm getting in trouble with everybody here today. Let's look at a French corporation. You have two cows, but you go on strike because you want three cows. French capitalism. Now let's look at German capitalism. I guess you have to be one to understand this. You have two cows. You re-engineer them so they live a hundred years, eat once a month, and milk themselves. (laughs) An Italian corporation. You have two cows, but you don't know where they are. (laughs) So you break for lunch. A Swiss corporation. You have 5,000 cows, none of which belongs to you. You charge others for storing your cows. An East Indian from the country of India, East Indian Corporation, you have two cows. You worship them. Now hold on for this one. This is the one that gets really tough. This is where I needed Pastor Rick to explain to me. You start with the same two cows. You sell three cows to your publicly listed company using letters of credit opened by your brother-in-law at the bank. Then you execute a debt equity swap with an associated general offer so that you get four cows back with tax exemption for five cows. The milk right of six cows are transferred via an intermediary to a Cayman Island company secretly owned by a majority shareholder who sells the right to seven cows back to your listed company. The annual report says the company owns eight cows with an option on one more. You sell one cow, leaving you with nine cows? No balance sheet is provided with the release. You ought to be saying to yourself, that's just nuts. And so is the economy of grace. That's a part of the point that I, in the world's eyes, when the world's eye, when the world looks at our message about the grace of God, I want to be generous. Nobody deserves anything. We're all day laborers. And if I pick some day laborers in the 11th hour and put them to work, there's nothing unfair here. Everybody is going to get more than justice. Everybody's going to get what's fair in life and more than fair. In Jesus' parable, no one receives less than they deserve. In fact, because of God's generosity, all of us receive infinitely more. In the world, in all the world, there is no place like the kingdom of heaven. I think it takes spiritual eyes to see it. 
And I think it takes a spiritual mind to understand it. But it can be understood. And I think these four principles will help us to do that. Keep these things in mind as you make your way through this kingdom life that we've been given. Kingdom living is subsistence existence. In the kingdom, we're always dependent on God. And we always will be. In the kingdom, God takes us from doing nothing in His eyes. No count. Nothing. To make us workers in His vineyard, He makes us all count. The kingdom is not about finishing first. It's not about finishing last. It's about not keeping score at all. And in the kingdom, God is God, and He is fair, but He's also gracious. No one receives less than they deserve in the kingdom. To the very contrary, we all receive infinitely more. I think that's a part of what this parable is trying to say to us. I thought, I know we did this last week, but I thought this would be a really appropriate place for us to end the sermon this morning. Just praying together the Lord's Prayer, putting all these kingdom pieces together. Would you join me as we do that? Pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.